I want to begin our study of the holiness of God by looking at an Old Testament king, King Uzziah. You want me to raise King Uzziah was a good king. Um, We shouldn't take that for granted. If you look at the kings in Judah and Israel, um, the majority of them were really a mess. They were either running after other gods, they were corrupt, they were pursuing their own um, well-being, their own wealth, indulging themselves, and so on. And that doesn't really surprise us because um, that's the way people often are throughout um, the history of the world. But it was certainly true with God's people. And um, the thing though, that's remarkable about King Uzziah is not only was he a good and wise king that God blessed and gave prosperity to all his people, um, he reigned for 52 years. We have to think about that for a moment because it's an extraordinarily long time for one person to rule. 52 years ago, Richard Nixon was the president of the United States. President Nixon, President Ford, President Carter, two terms of President Reagan, President George H.W. Bush, two terms of President Clinton, two terms of George W. Bush, two terms of President Obama, one term of President Trump, and now President Biden, all in the span of one reign of good King Uzziah. And one of the things that meant was, is by the time King Uzziah died, almost everybody in Israel, the vast majority of people, because most of them would have died by the time they were 55 or 60 years old, most of them had only known one king, and then he had died. What if you were living in a culture like that? I mean, what would you be thinking? It would be like the foundations had been shaken, and you would be just wondering what comes next. Are we going to have all this infighting and civil war? Are we going to be ruled by a corrupt ruler, by someone who doesn't care about God, by someone who brings judgment upon us? And all those things were possible. And in the midst of that, we're told that the prophet Isaiah has a vision from God. And in chapter six, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uh, What was God doing? God was telling Isaiah, yes, it's true, good King Uzziah is dead, but I, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, I sit enthroned on the universe, and I am reigning forever. Do not be afraid. And then in that vision, we're told that there are angels crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And and you remember what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me. I I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, right? So that's a reaction to the holiness of God. And so as we study this really wonderful book together, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, we're going to be grappling with both sides of this. On the one hand, the sinners coming into the presence of a holy God can be utterly terrifying. It can break up our worldview. It breaks up our confidence and many other things that we just sort of take for granted in our day-to-day lives. On the other hand, the holiness of God is a wonderfully attractive characteristic. And so we need to answer questions, of course, like, what does it mean to say that God is holy? And what does it mean for us? After all, the Lord says, be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This isn't just something we're supposed to observe. We're supposed to worship God for his holiness, but we are also supposed to pursue holiness in our own lives. 
well, we're not going to answer all these questions tonight. Um, tonight, we're just going to get started. And I should tell you that this first chapter isn't simply about holiness. R.C. is talking about the bigness, the majesty, the grandeur of God in a broader stroke than simply the doctrine of God's holiness here. And that, that's a really fitting way to introduce us uh, to this story. Uh, so what I want to do is have more discussion uh, tonight than we've normally done in our Bible studies. Um, for good reason, if we're going through Zechariah, which is a very difficult book to interpret, I'm going to have to say a lot, and, and it's going to be hard for us just to pool our ideas. Uh, that's not really true with a book like this, right? We're going to read these chapters, and it's going to be accessible to a large degree to all of us, and we should share what we're learning together. So I have basically six things I'd like to talk about tonight, but if there are additional things, they're, they're all from, well, the first five are all from the chapter. Uh, if you have additional things, let's just throw them out there. We'll have a good discussion together. We'll learn from each other. And um, we'll just take it from there. Uh, before I launch into what those things are, why don't we go before the throne of grace in prayer and ask that the Lord would bless our study together. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are in utter awe of who you are of your majestic power that you would simply speak the word and the entire universe would leap into existence. We are in awe of your holiness and we are in awe of your grace that you would stoop, not simply to forgive people like us, but to bring us into your family, that we would know you and love you and glorify you forever. And so we ask this evening as we begin this study of this important aspect of your character, your holiness, that you would cause each of us to come to know you better, that we would see with greater clarity who you are and what you are like, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would glorify you more fully in this world. Father, use our words to build each other up and to glorify your holy name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I would like to do um, six things tonight. If you have one right off the top of your head, you can say it now, but we could also talk about them as we go through um, the chapter this evening. Uh, the first I want to talk about experiencing God. R.C. Sproul begins by describing an experience that he has. But second, I want to talk about what's behind that experience, what drove that experience. It wasn't just a random night that he was having. It had to do with theology that he was learning, the truth of God showing up in his experience. Um, third, I want to talk about something he only mentions in passing. I don't want to talk about it a little bit, but I think it's helpful. And, and that's the fact that it's possible to be an unintentional Unitarian. Um, that is, it's possible to be a, a Christian who really doesn't know very much about who God is or his character. Um, the fact that he's triune and draws near to us and is a majestic God. And so we want to be able to move past that. But I think it's worth mentioning in passing, since R.C. talks about it in the chapter. Uh, fourth, I think we ought to talk about some of the challenges we face in this world, uh, just as we think about God. In the book, R.C. mentions um, Uzzah stretching out his hand and touching the ark, and it's striking him dead. And as a young man, he said that really bothered him. He didn't understand. It seemed like Uzzah was well-intentioned from our human standpoint. And God killed him. Or you think about God ordering the 
Israelites going into the promised land to kill all the Canaanites. How do we make sense of that? And we're going to see that the holiness of God is central to being able to resolve those sorts of natural difficulties and challenges that we face. A fifth, and this is really at the end of a chapter, embracing Jesus's own priorities. Jesus, after all, teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name. I think we ought to talk a little bit about how that fleshes out in our prayer life and how we think about God and how we think about our own uh, walk with him. But sixth, I want to begin by just sort of fleshing out a little bit, at least tentatively, what exactly do we mean by holiness? You'll notice that R.C. doesn't really define it in this chapter, and I think it'll be helpful for us to at least um, approach a definition of holiness so that we have a clearer idea of what we're talking about. Does anybody have anything else off the top of their head, or maybe you wrote it down, that you want to make sure we talk about tonight that we don't miss, or do you just want to dive in and uh, we'll see when we get there? I'm going to take Simon's consent to move on. I got a couple shaking heads here. Um, please, I really do hope this is going to be more of a discussion than we've had in the past. And uh, so we begin tonight with the beginning of the chapter with an experience that R.C. had while he was in college. And if you don't really know his um, background story, R.C. became a Christian in college. Right? He had been raised in a Christian family of sorts. They, they were... Um, a bit nominal in terms of how they approach things, according to R.C. Of course, none of us know his family. Um, but he went, to, he went to a Christian college, a Presbyterian school, and while he was there, he became a Christian. God caused him to be born again. The story he recounts here is later in his college experience. He talks about going out, but he felt gripped while he was getting ready to sleep in the middle of the night. You know, that stage where you're kind of falling asleep, but you're still aware of things. He could still hear things, kind of that in-between sense. And he had this profound sense that he needed to get up and go do something. And he went to the Gothic chapel on campus. And there he had this sense of encountering, meeting God in prayer. Not that he had words for it, right? He acknowledged he didn't have anything particularly to say to God, but he was experiencing God as being bigger than he thought before. Um, I want to ask if anybody has any thoughts about R.C.'s story, or also if anybody would like to share some experiences that you've had where God deeply impressed you with something about his greatness, his majesty, his holiness, his power. A anything at all. We're all among friends here. And if no one has anything, I'm going to call on Al. Yeah, it's funny you say that, because uh, <laughs> when we were first reading it, I'm going, I didn't think R.C. was charismatic, mm. <laughs> you know? R.C. is actually a bit charismatic, by the way, when you say that. Um, I think that was a part that they didn't really advertise too much, but he, he was. But I also want to say two things about this, Al, and I'll come back to you with it. Um, first of all, as a matter of literary license, it makes sense to start by talking with experiences and things that are engaging. As long as you're not grounding things on that, that, that makes good sense. And secondly, Christianity is experiential, right? Doctrine drives experience, but it's not like we're just, we just have doctrine. We, we do have a lived out life of faith. But I'll go back to you, Al. Yes, um, so R.C. was a little charismatic. That surprised you? I, it did. I mean, not like I know him, you know, extremely well, 
but you know what i have listened to him you know yeah it did strike me a little bit oh that's a little bit strange you know um but the only thing that i could say that i was ever close to that uh was when i had ruptured my achilles and it was the middle of the night and i was in excruciating pain and i remember i just cried out you know mm -hmm. lord I don't even remember what I said, but I cried out something mm -hmm. and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, the pain was gone. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, it, whether it was an hour or whatever it was, but it was that noticeable. And, mm -hmm. and, and it struck me that I was like, wow, you know, the Lord heard me and yeah. he answered uh, other thoughts or other experiences people have had where there was a place in your life, a time in your life, maybe many of them, where you just had this sense of the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the holiness of God. We've actually all experienced this to some degree. I mean, you have conviction of sin. You have a sense of the greatness of God and therefore the horror of my own um, sinning against him. So you don't have to get in details about that. Um, we, we, we don't want to have, this is not a true tales told uh, Zoom cast. Anything else about experiences? It's a shy group. Mona's coming. <laughs> she'll she'll <laughs> join right in. Experience. Oh, boy. Hey, Mona. Hi. Sorry, we're, talking about, we're talking about experiencing God. And people are sharing when they've had experiences where they had a sense of the weightiness of God, the greatness of God, or something like that. Yeah, we'll get myself a chair. Hang on one second. Okay. Anyone else before we get Mona a shot? I, I know I've had a few experiences. I can think of like two specific times. One was hiking in the mountains and it was a beautiful, clear day. So I stopped, you know, we were taking a break, looking out over the mountains. And I remember looking down and seeing a group of hikers and they looked so small. And I had that feeling of like, we're really small in these mountains. And these mountains are really small compared to other mountains. And the mountains are small compared to the world. And the world is small compared to the universe. And it just sort of had this like piling weight of realizing just how, you know, vast the universe is and how great God is and compared with everything. And you know, I think I've had uh, another experience like that, uh, looking out on a really clear starry night, you know, you go up where there's, where there's nothing else, and you you look out at the stars, and you have that feeling of, of sensing how great God is in comparison with all creation. Yeah. So Mona, you have a seat, you want to share an experience? Um, it's funny that I should say that, because as a teenager, I had watched you know, one of those earth type uh, series that was made by Christians. I don't even remember where the video came from, but it was about the universe and the galaxies. And, and I just remember laying in bed and think, feeling God's uh, like vastness and greatness beyond my comprehension to a point where I felt like my mind was boggled. I, I couldn't keep thinking about it because I was just uh, standing in awe of who mm. God is, and it was mind-boggling. Yeah. I, I've had a few 
I've had a few experiences like that too. I also have the other side of it, which RC talks about is this was followed by a flooding of peace in him. And um, one of the ones I think of my own life about peace is I was in the Indian Ocean in a ship in a typhoon and the waves were humongous. I don't know. They were 65, 70 feet high, whatever. And the ship's doing this. And I just prayed and went to sleep. I was like, eh, if I die, I die. That's fine. You know? And I had that complete sense of resting in God's arms. I wasn't at all concerned about it. And um, I, I do think that's very much something that the Lord sometimes does. He gives us, um, as we sing, you know, uh, tis grace that taught my heart to fear, tis grace that fear relieved. And God does both of those things with him. He gives us a sense of his extraordinary awe. And then he says, fear not, right? Fear not. I am for you. I am with you. Ray, were you going to say something? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, for me, when it, the first Sunday I came to worship at Merrimack Valley Church with Steve Magotsky was pulpit supply 27 years ago. And I remember turning to Ellen right after the sermon. And I said, you know, having been a Catholic my whole life, and I turned to her and I said, this is it. I said, you know, the first time that I heard the serm a sermon preached faithfully, from the Bible, and it just it just struck me as like, wow, I just never ever heard that before. Mm. And in other in other occasions, every once in a while, and it comes down to realizing and and just thanking God for His amazing goodness to me, mm -hmm. and being overwhelmed to the point you just sob. Yeah. And that, that's happened, you know, a few times. Sometimes you could be through scripture, or you could be hearing some something on the you know Christian radio and it just hits you and go, man, I just mm -hmm. it just it just overwhelms you. Yeah. No, that's that's wonderful. Um, here's an important thing though, which is uh, Al was talking about RC being a bit of a charismatic. The way he words the beginning here is actually a little dicey. Um, but his experience was not raw experience. It was experience that arose out of something, something that had happened earlier that day. What had happened earlier that day? Does anyone remember? I know a couple of you haven't read this for a little while, but what was the experience earlier in the day that actually drove this experience? He was in psychology class, right? He was in a philosophy class. Uh, which I thought was kind of funny. And do you remember what they were talking about? St. Augustine. Go ahead, sweetheart. St. Augustine. Yeah, I thought that was funny, by the way. Now, I do know that philosophy classes talk about St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas because they're two of the most brilliant people who've ever lived. But it was funny that R.C. referred to him as a philosopher. He was a pastor. He was the Bishop of Hippo. Right. He was he was not in the Greek Academy, you know, with um, uh, debating various ideas that you know Greeks had about reality or something. He was someone who was teaching and expounding God's word as a minister of the word of God. Um, and what they were talking about was creation. And in the discussion that um, St. Augustine had about creation, he pricked R.C. to realize he had this very shallow thing. He had read, you know, Genesis 1. We all have in the beginning God created. But he stopped and thought about it. Not only what does that tell us about the event of creation, 
but what does it teach us about God as creator? And so R.C. has this fairly lengthy thing about uh, trying to think about nothing. You know, God creates ex nihilo from nothing, right? Nothing's not the material. There was nothing there. And God brought reality, material reality, into existence. He created time, he created light, and all those things that we sort of just take for granted as though they're always just there. And it overwhelmed him. Is that something that you think about much in terms of God's awesomeness as a creator? I was reminded of this just again with the with the Webb telescope about how enormous the universe is and some of the photos they were bringing back. And you think, it's just beyond my imagination how big the universe is. And our God simply spoke the word and it leapt into existence. Yeah, I was going to echo that, that both dimensions going farther out just continues to expand and then continuing to look closer in. We're finding even more unique particles within the atom. So it's just phenomenal yeah. creation that we're placed in the middle of. Let's flesh out some of the ramifications of that for us, because if you think of something like you might travel to go to the Louvre or um, the Metropolitan Museum in New York and look at these beautiful artworks. And then we have to realize that when you go walk through the White Mountains or um, the Green Mountains, uh, you go out to the ocean, everything, and you see everything that's made, God made that. He, he made it with power, but he made it with beauty. Uh, I remember years ago, um, just thinking about the fact that God made things in color, right? For utilitarian, there are value, there are utilitarian purposes for color, but really he made things for beauty. In fact, the first thing we're told about the tree that he makes in the garden is he made it beautiful. Before we're told, he made it for food, right? God made all this beauty. He's just, he is the great artist. And so it should change the way we think about God with a sense of awe. I mean, if you had an opportunity to go hang out a bit with Michelangelo, you would be awed because of the great artwork he did. And there's an infinite gap between Michelangelo and God because God created Michelangelo, right? What else does it talk in terms of our relationship with God? That God is creator as you think about that. What does that make you, me? A lump of clay. Lump of clay. <laughs> Well, it does change things, Ray, because it makes us think about the sovereignty of God. So you have that wonderful picture in Jeremiah of God as the potter. Well, it's a picture with the potter. He's molding the clay and he throws it down. He redoes it, right? And it reminds us that God has the right to do that, right? Um, here's an interesting question. Why is it wrong for you to kill another human being? It's obviously wrong. It's a big deal. God in the Old Testament gave capital punishment was the consequence of, of um, first degree murder. Why is it wrong? They're made in the image of God. Yeah, they're made in the image of God. And that actually is a very practical ramification because it means it's wrong for me to kill them. but It's not wrong for God to kill them. We say that again. It's wrong for you to kill me. It is not wrong for God to kill me. After all, I am a guilty sinner, right? If God kills me, I am his creature. He has all the right in the world to do it, right? With complete justice. Uh, by the way, that'll help when you start thinking about things like God commanding the destruction of the Canaanites. Really bad if you and I decide to invade our neighbors and kill them. 
completely right and just if the creator the, of all things who owns them as their creature is his creatures chooses to do the very same thing. So we have to remember there's an enormous difference. Um, Van Til used to draw two circles on the board, a big circle for God, a little circle for us, and he'd draw lines and he'd talk about the creator-creature distinction. And we have to remember God is not simply a bigger version of us. He's the creator, we're the creatures, he's different than us. He's majestic. And so... Um, what else would you think about with God being a creator? Or did anyone get hung up on contemplating nothingness, which R.C. was doing in college? He just couldn't get his mind wrapped around nothingness. Actually, he's put that to good use. He wrote a very helpful book later on in life called Not a Chance, which is very, very helpful. Any thoughts at all? Okay, so God being creator is a big one, and I think that's what's going to come back to us over and over again. We think about the transcendence, the greatness of God, but you can do that with a lot of different characteristics of God, and you think about those characteristics, and they should lead you to worship. Uh, by the way, I don't think it's accidental that R.C. went to the chapel, the Gothic chapel, on campus when he had this sense. Now, I've had these experiences just walking in the snow at night or whatever, right? I mean, you do not have to be in a building, but we are not disembodied minds in vats, right? Having a church where we go and we worship God, that's a natural place to think you go to a sanctuary in a church building and you draw near and you worship God there. So I don't think that's really a strange thing. Um, R.C. mentioned he had been an unintentional Unitarian. Did anyone pick up on that or have any ideas what he was talking about when he said he was an unintentional Unitarian? It was just a little piece. Well, he, I think part of that, what he was saying that even though he knew he was a Christian, he really didn't understand the full depth of what that meant. Yeah. Other ideas, that's true. Other ideas that go with that about what R.C. was talking about when he said he was an unintentional Unitarian. He was he was thinking of Jesus more, the person of Jesus versus understanding God the Father. So it seemed like thinking about God the Father was what drew him also to the to worship and to feel his awe. Yeah, Jody, it's good. I um. I'm going to fill in a little bit because I've read like 60 of R.C. Sproul's books and have listened to a thousand hours of him teaching. Um, so I will occasionally fill in things from elsewhere. Um, I think that when he talks about being a Jesus-only Unitarian, it's not just that he was thinking about Jesus and not the Father. That is what he says in the book. But he was thinking about the transactional nature of what Jesus had done for him, right? My sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, after all, does fully reveal God, right? But he was thinking of it very narrowly in terms of, I trusted Jesus, my sins are forgiven, I should follow Jesus now. And he also, just as he hadn't come to know the majesty of God yet, and we're all in process on this, right? When none of us goes, oh yeah, I've got this. I've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, so now I got it. No, we all see just a little bit. But RC is, RC's experience, I think, is very common which is he started with a sliver of understanding God. And in particular, because this is the way the gospel is primarily presented, the sliver that says, 
I'm a sinner. I needed to be forgiven. I am forgiven because of Jesus. And as he grows in his knowledge of the Father, he's actually also growing in his knowledge of Jesus and his robust majesty. Um, I, th I think we want to we want to put those things together. Here's my warning, or at least uh, encouragement. I, I know you, so I don't think this is an issue for us. But that's a practical danger in the church. Um, a lot of people don't seem to want to know very much about God. Uh, the worst selling books in theology. Well, I should ask you this. What are the two worst selling categories of theology books? If you had to guess what they would be. I'll give you a hint on the other side. The two best-selling categories uh, for the last 30 or so years have been books on end times and books that have to deal with um, something in my hurt, my life, finding um, God's will for my life, right? Those are the two best, broadly speaking, categories. What are the two worst-selling categories? And by the way, this is true for R.C. Sproul's own books, excepting this one, The Holiness of God. The attributes of God. Attributes of God are one. And what's the other one? Is there a book, Knowing God? That one is sold very well, but you got to keep in mind it's an exception. Um, the other category is books about Jesus. I think it's a fascinating thing. R.C. Sproul wrote a number of books about Jesus, and they were his worst-selling books. Um, people want to know, quote, practical stuff about their lives and how Christianity impacts their lives. Honestly, that's a perfectly good thing. But it is interesting that many American Christians, I have no idea if this is true in other parts of the world or if it's been true throughout church history, um, tend to be quite happy with a pretty simple knowledge of God. And so uh, wanting to know things about, um, as Peter said, the attributes of God and what does it mean for God to be simple, to have existence in himself, his omniscience, how does that impact us and so on. Um, those are actually not that popular, and uh, we should realize that's a bad thing. We should want to know God better. I trust you're on this call, in part because we all want to know God better. Uh, but we need to resist that temptation to be practically Unitarians. And those of us who are elders, we need to be careful in the life of the church that we're not saying, here's three tips on how you can be better parents this week. Here's four tips on how you can manage your money better as a Christian, and so on. And what we're actually doing is talking about how God is like a laundry detergent that makes our life better, rather than focusing on God himself and saying, I want to know him, right? Or as you put that in terms of Jesus, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his sufferings, right? And his resurrection. So anyway, that's just, that's just a passing comment. David, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just... Um, one of my friends that came to the church study that, that we had, the Southern Bible study, mm -hmm. one of the things that she said I thought was really interesting as she walked out the door, she said, uh, I didn't realize how little I know about God. Oh. And yeah. I, I thought that was very, you know, uh, honest. It's also helpful. Assessment, you know, like how little we know about God, you know. We're all in that category, right? God is infinite, we're finite, and we know not that much. Now, thankfully, we know stuff that's true. God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself in Jesus. He's revealing himself in his word, but God is immensely bigger than everything we know. I'm reminded of a wonderful scene in um, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, 
one year Lucy, when she goes through the wardrobe, I think you all know the story. It's um, these young children are going through the back of a closet, a wardrobe in England, and um, they're passing into this new world, this fantastic world where Aslan the lion represents Jesus Christ. And one year when Lucy goes through this wardrobe, um, she's eventually sees Aslan and um, she runs up to him and she says, oh, Aslan, you're so much bigger than you were last year. And Aslan says, well, actually, Lucy, in your world, it's only been a year. And in this world, it's been thousands of years. Um, but it turns out that in that, all that time, I haven't changed at all. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I've noticed this, the better people get to know me, the bigger I seem to them, though I haven't changed at all. And, and I love that picture because that's so true of us, right? God isn't getting bigger, but as we get to know him better, we start to realize how extraordinary he is in his majesty and in his holiness. C.S. Lewis often had a wonderful way of putting his, his finger on things like this. Well, that leads us to R.C. talking about some of the challenges he faced as a young man, uh, challenges some of you may still have in your thinking right now. Um, think about that story of Uzzah. That's one he mentions. So the ark is being brought back to Jerusalem. It's put on a cart, and, 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 and the cart's rocking. And Uzzah sees this, looks like the holy ark of the covenant might slide out and fall into the dirt. And he stretches out his hand to steady the ark, and he touches it. And God kills him on the spot. And you go, wasn't Uzzah just trying to do a good thing? Why would God kill him? And so I ask you that question. Why would God kill Uzzah? Does that trouble you at all? It would have troubled me if I didn't understand why he did it. So, Ray, why does God kill him? Uh, primarily because they were carrying the ark incorrectly against his, uh, how he told them to carry. They were supposed to carry it, not put it on a cart. Yeah, that so was, they were violating dumb. his commandments. Second, related to this, um, Uzzah had the very strange idea that the dirt would defile the ark, but his he wouldn't, right? Uh, you, you know, that the, the problem isn't me, right? Uh, I am a good person. But behind that has to be something else. What's that? Why doesn't God just go, hey, no big deal. Let me, let me, I'll give you another warning. No big deal. Look, you, you shouldn't have done that, right? But it's all okay. Let's go out and get ice cream together. I think on occasion, God does things right away. Uh, I guess to, as a, I don't know, to prove a, prove a point for lack of better words. Um, so it it puts the fear of of himself and others around him that he is all powerful and he's holy and he's the creator. Yeah, so that's true, Ray. So uh, thankfully, God doesn't always do this. Otherwise, there'd be a lot more dead people. You think about Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. Um, God does not ordinarily strike people dead right away like that. Although we should realize he does. And Paul says uh, about those who are coming to the Lord's table with uh, evil thoughts towards their brother and sisters in Christ, coming the cavalier manner, that some of you are sick and some of you have died because of doing that, right? God is a holy God. That's the thing that's behind this. 
God is holy. Now we got to ask what, what does it mean for God to be holy? But because God is holy, he doesn't just say, no big deal, I don't care. Yeah, you know, I really, you shouldn't have done that, but it's, it's fine, right? God doesn't do that. And we have to figure out what does it mean that God is holy? That means that God isn't going to do that. He's not going to allow people to trample um, his commandments under the, underfoot. And as the Hebrews says, you know, if, de- if, if uh, capital punishment was carried out upon uh, ancient Jews for breaking the law of Moses, how much more will people suffer if they trample the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot as an unclean thing? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, other problems like that. Any, anyone have difficulty with God saying, I'm going to kill all the Canaanites? There is actually right now a cottage industry of books coming out by people that, let's just say loosely, are Old Testament scholars dealing with that problem. Because it just seems so untenable to tell people that God would actually command the destruction of an entire people. By the way, I've had personal discussions with some of these ministers and professors that think it's just outrageous to think that God would say that. Any of you have problems with that? Maybe you don't want to admit it on camera. That's okay. I think in the opposite direction, if we look at Abraham and what he was called to do with Isaac, he took the approach that it was more important for him to Obey and trust God and to spare Isaac's life. Yeah, Peter, that's a really good point. So what come you 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 have those choices in life of who do I try to please? And you know, you've heard me say this a number of times when when I ask the question, you know, do I want the praise of God or the praise of the world? My answer is both. I want both. The the question is, is when those things come into conflict each, with each other, what do you choose? And Abraham when he brings his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, chose obedience to God and pleasure of God, even over that which was most valuable to him. Uh, I do want to say there's a, there's a richness there that complicates this, um, that um, Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. I, I, don't, I don't think that means it wasn't a horrible thing to, to, to have to go through with, but God had made a promise through Isaac that his seed would be fulfilled. And Abraham reasons something like this, and we get this from Hebrews. God has never raised anyone from the dead before, but it's not impossible for God to do that. It is impossible for God to lie. And God has told me my seed will go through Isaac. And so if I kill Isaac, God is going to raise him from the dead. But we all come back and kind of stagger a bit at the fact that God would ask him to do that. And of course, what God was doing is he was setting up a picture of him offering up his own son, Jesus Christ, on that very same mountain. Um, after all, Abraham doesn't go through with it. But yeah, Peter, I like that a lot. God, Abraham held almighty God in awe. Uh, other thoughts about challenges that maybe the doctrine of the holiness of God will help us get at. We'll have to talk about what that is, and I think that'll help fill in the blank. But challenges. Sometimes it's hard to go, did God really do that? Wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? Or do we just go, well, that was a long time ago, so I don't really worry about, I don't know any Sodomites or or, or people that lived in Gomorrah, so 
I don't really have an emotional attachment to it. Al, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I, I never had a problem with those uh, passages because, uh, you know, as you, as you look at them, and, and I know I've said this before, and it goes back to Abraham, where Abraham says, you know, does not the God of the universe do right? And so uh, I just always knew that whatever God is doing is right, and he's doing it for the right reason. And we know that these people were wicked and their time had come. And he said, now it's time for judgment. Yeah. So the fact that he kills everybody, I, I, I never really had a problem with it. Um, yeah. which, which then obviously goes, all right, in our day and age, uh, you know, when is the time come when he goes, this is it. It's done. You know, I'm judging. Uh, Al, you know, I'm with you. As uh, When I was very, very young, I had a very strong sense of God being God. And I can't tell you how that all came about and everything. And so I've never had a problem. It, it never occurred to me to put God in the dock, to use C.S. Lewis's terms, right, that I'm going to stand in judgment over what God is doing. I always realized I'm the one in the dock. God is the one on the throne or on the judge's bench to fit the analogy. So I, I've never wrestled with this either, but I do understand from talking to people that many people have, many people do. And I actually think the majesty of God is part of the answer, but in particular, the holiness of God is, um, is something that will help us put that in its right place. I, I want to skip ahead a little bit to defining holiness. I think that'll help us here and then come back to Jesus's priorities. So I'm sure you have all heard suggested definitions of what it means to be holy or what holiness means. And I just want to get a couple of them out there. Let's just throw them out on the table. What have you heard? What is What does it mean to be holy? One thing is he has to, he has to judge sin. Doesn't have a choice. So I think that's true. I'm not sure it works as a definition of holiness, though, Ray. It's like, because God is holy, he must judge sin. I'm not sure that tells me what holiness is. What is holiness? Set apart. Set apart. We're just going to get ideas on the table here. What other ones? So set apart is a very common definition. Without sin. Without sin. What yeah. else? Sort of on Ray's point, uh, perfect justice. Perfect justice. Other. Other. Other is very common, by the way, particularly, um, uh, I think, in the last 30 years or so, people talk about holiness in terms of the otherness of God. Other definitions of holiness. Al was going to say like Kristen, but he didn't want to embarrass her. I don't have those scruples. Uh, David? Uh, perfection? Perfection. Okay. So, perfection. Okay. I'm, so, we I'm have not. Without sin, perfect justice, other or the otherness of God, 
and perfection. What I'd like to do for a second is just go through these and see how they work and, and do they work. And we'll see, I think, but they all are partially true. They're partial definitions. But if we want a definition that's going to work for holiness, we want one that's going to fit all the biblical data. And the, the idea of holiness, the word holy, shows up a lot in the Bible. So here's three big things we have to get a definition to fit. God is holy. God calls us to be holy, right? Be ye holy for I am holy. And holiness also can be positional. That is, the moment you, the very first moment you believe in you're in Christ, you are declared to be a saint. You are holy, right? So our definition of holiness ideally should be able to handle all three of those ideas. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it's a little bit inadequate. So the first thing is being set apart. Here's a group of pens. I took this pen. I set it apart. Did that pen become holy? No. 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 Yeah. So being set apart in itself is an inadequate definition, but it's on the right track. You want to say not simply set apart from, but set apart to, set apart to belonging to God in a special way, right? Do you see how that's a better definition? Not, not set apart from primarily, but set apart as belonging to God. Now, that creates a problem for us. How is God set apart as belonging to God? Because we have to have holiness that talks about God, who is holy, holy, holy. I think we can answer that, but we're going to have to come back to that. I, 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 have, I have some looks going on here. Do, do you see that simply setting apart doesn't do it? So actually, that's really relevant when we think about our lives, because you can think of your holiness as being set apart from the world, right? I am holy because I am not worldly. But actually, all you're saying there is, is that you have moral uprightness. Moral uprightness and holiness are not the same thing in the Bible. They overlap because to pursue holiness, you have to pursue moral uprightness, but they're not the same thing. We'll see if that makes more sense in a second. Would um, you also also include uh, holiness for God's purposes? Yeah, yeah. So being devoted, be, being set apart to God for God. You throw those two things together, Ray, and I think we're getting really close to what holiness means. Um, without sin, well, God is, of course, without sin, right? And being without sin or being sanctified isn't going to make you without sin, but less sinful, right? More like Jesus is, in fact, something that holiness involves. But it won't quite do as a, as a full orb definition. And there's a bit of the danger of the same track, which is I'm getting better is my definition of holiness. But, of course, there is some overlap. Um, third, we have perfect justice. Um, God does execute perfect justice. However, when we talk about the attributes of God, we actually distinguish the attributes of God being holy and God being just because the Bible distinguishes those. So they, they do overlap with each other, right? But they, they, they also are separate or distinct categories. I shouldn't say separate. Um, God being other. That's a surprisingly popular definition today. The otherness of God reflects his holiness. Um, does anyone have a verse that creates a problem for that? 
calling God other as being holy. Why, why does that create a problem? I'm going to call on one of my three favorite piano players. Oh, yes, yes, she knew I would do that. Marissa, give me a Bible verse. Why does, why does describing God as other as a definition of God being holy, why is that problematic? Uh-oh, you're on mute. You have to come off mute. All right, a Bible verse that says Bible it? Verse. A Bible okay. verse that, that that makes that wrong. That, you can't say otherness is the definition of holiness. Um, I, I don't think I can come up with a, a Bible verse, but I can give you an idea of what I might think. Go ahead. Um, I think that because God calls us to be holy, like we can't be other like God because we're his creatures and he's our creator. That was um, a fantastic answer. And pre it was precisely the Bible verse I was looking for. Oh, great. <laughs> be holy. Uh, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Right. That, that's a fundamental command to us as Christians. Be holy. And God isn't saying be other. Right. Like me. <laughs> this doesn't work. Right. So so other in itself isn't going to really um, carry things out. Now, by the way, in neo-orthodoxy, there's a real problem with talking about the otherness of God. Uh, Karl Barth, uh, probably the most important theologian of the 20th century, uh, who is neo-orthodox in this point, uh, would talk about God as being totaliter aliter, that is totally other. And one of the things R.C. Sproul's made a great point about over and over again, which for some reason people have difficulty with, is if God is totally other, you can't know anything about him, right? Because you the reason, the reason why you know anything about God is by analogy, right? God is like this. And if God is entirely, totally other, you can't do an analogy, right? So, so be, be a little careful around that um, use of the word other as it connects to God. It is true that God is different than us. God is the creator. We are the creature but we were created in God's image and God created us in his image so that there's characteristics that are like precisely so we can have a relationship with him, right? You can't have a relationship with someone who is totally other. Well, we can come back to that at some other time. I want to stick with, with holiness here. Uh, the last one is perfection. Well, God of course is perfect and he is perfect in his holiness, but actually God's perfect in everything. He's perfect in his justice, in his grace, in his mercy, in his knowledge, right? He's perfect in all things. And therefore, you can't say perfection is holiness. So let me give you a, um, one to try out. Um, I think we're actually very blessed that in English, we have a word that works to cover all of these things. And that word is devoted. Holiness is to be devoted to God. Let me say that again. Holiness is to be devoted to God. Let me give all three of those categories for you, and you'll see how that works. Think about objects in the Old Testament. If you're in 800 BC and you had a, um, a vessel, let's say a silver uh, vessel, and you wanted to donate it to the temple for God's use, you would devote that vessel to the temple, and there would be a ceremony involved with that. And that vessel would go from being common to being holy. 
right? Do you, do you have that picture in your mind? It's a very common thing that would happen in the Old Testament. Things would be set apart as belonging to God, as Ray was saying, not just set apart, but set apart for God's purposes. And that vessel would now be declared holy. Now, nothing changed in the vessel. The molecular makeup of the silver was exactly the same as it was before, but positionally, it had become devoted to God. It therefore was called holy. That's what happens to you the moment you first believe. When you first believe, you're united with Christ by faith, with Christ by faith, and you are set apart as belonging to God, devoted to God positionally. Your, your life hasn't changed yet. I mean, in one sense it has, if you've experienced that, you know, this in your mind and your heart, but your all your behaviors, all your patterns, all your living it out, coming to know God better is in the future. But right at that moment, you're a saint. That's the way the Bible talks about it. When you read the New Testament, all the New Testament epistles, essentially, not 100% of them, but essentially they are, they're all addressed to the saints. And you look at the church in Corinth and you don't say they're living really well, right? Those are really role model people, the way saint came to be used in, um, you know, 400, 500 uh, AD and then through the Middle Ages to talk about role model Christians. Biblically, every single person united to Christ by faith is positionally holy. That is, they're a saint. That's what saint means, is holy ones. Do you get that much? You see how devoted to God works, just like a vessel being devoted to the temple. You've been devoted to God. But second, the word devotion works well because it also expresses something we can do. That be ye holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy is a call for us to pursue holiness. Positionally, we're set apart as being devoted to God. Now live that way. Live as though your life is for God's glory, for his good, that you're seeking his pleasure, walking quorum deo throughout the day. That, and we use the, the word devoted that way. I'm going to be devoted to God. I'm going to be committed in that way, profound way, to pursuing a life that is pleasing to him. But here's the key thing. It also works for God himself. God is devoted to himself. Let me say that again. God is devoted to himself. God is devoted to his own glory. This sometimes troubles people because it makes God seem like um, he's a bit of an egotist. You know, we're supposed to seek God's glory. And many people think, and God should seek our glory. But you have to remember, God's not an idolater. But the problem with us treating ourselves like God is we're not God. God is not an idolater. He's therefore rightly devoted to his own glory. And of course, there's three persons in the Trinity. They're seeking each other's glory as they seek to bless each other. And because God is devoted to his own glory, that's why when people like Uzzah, who are supposed to know better, do know better, um, betray God's glory, God strikes them dead. Right? That's, that actually goes back to what Ray was saying earlier about God can't look upon sin without judging it. The reason why God can't look upon sin without judging it is he's devoted to himself. And therefore, he cannot um, simply pass off like it's no big deal that people are uh, flaunting his laws, flaunting his righteousness, refusing to bow the knee to him as the king that he is. Questions on that or comments, thoughts about it? I, I think you'll see as you go through this series that this language of devotion is really helpful. Positionally devoted to God, practically in our lives, pursuing devotion to God, 
and God being devoted to himself uh, works really well for figuring out what holiness is. And it looks like I put you all to sleep. Marissa, I'm going to call on you again. How does that work for you? What do you think of that definition? Um, I think it's um, a really good definition thinking of Uzzah and the cart because he was supposed to be devoted to God. Like those people carrying the ark incorrectly were not being holy. They weren't devoting themselves correctly in obedience. Um, although God was being holy on his part, kind of in that justice aspect Um because he kept his word, you know, he, um, he was, he was saying, I'm all about my glory. And, um, I, I know it's hard to grapple with the fact that God is that powerful, it, you know, when it comes to, like you said, all wiping out all the Canaanites, um, but recognizing the fact that he is, um, our creator and we are the creature, I think really helps. Yeah. Of course, we have to remember with the Canaanites, one of the things that's really striking to me, and, and people see this differently. I, I'm going to go with Al is probably on my side on this. The thing that amazes me about the Canaanites is not that God would kill them all. It's that God would give more than 400 years for them to repent before he killed them all. So the thing that's most striking to me is actually God's long suffering that he tells Abraham, hey, you know what? Your, your descendants are going to be in captivity for 400 years. Um because the uh, iniquity of the uh, Amorites is not yet filled up. And um, let's just be honest, uh, most of us, if we had the power of God, we probably would not have been that patient. Yeah. Other thoughts on, on that idea of holiness being devotion to God? God's devoted to himself. We're positionally devoted to him. We are called to be devoted to him. I think you'll find that that works out well. And I wanted to get that on the table because RC does not start with a definition of holiness. And it can be very easy for us to start with holiness just means God's big and powerful, which of course he is. But the book is the holiness of God. So, Ray, sharp rebuttals. You don't like that definition? No, I was going to say, would you, would you um, think it in the same category as when God says, he is zealous for his own glory. You could also say zealous for his own holiness. I would say that zeal for his own glory is an expression of his holiness. Yes. That those are really overlapping ideas. Yeah. And actually it's really good for us, right? Because God has so ordered the universe that his glory and the good of his people are never in conflict with each other. When God is glorified, his people are blessed. Not all people, his people. And when God blesses his people, he is glorified. Right. So we should realize there's no, there's no tension there. But we should also realize when we talk about the gospel being good news, it's not literally good news for everybody. Um, I was just talking with David Fiore the other day, and one of the things he pointed out was the very first declaration of the gospel in the Bible is God telling the gospel to Satan. Right. Genesis 3.15. And it's bad news for Satan that the, um, the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan's head. Right? It's bad news. The gospel is objectively good news, but if you reject it and you spurn God's grace, that's a really awful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Well, we had one other thing that he mentions here that I think is worth pointing out, which is Jesus's priorities in the Lord's Prayer. Um, the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, hallowed be thy name, which I think sometimes, as he points out, people miss, they forget that's a petition. Um, what does it mean to hallow something? Not hollow, hallow. What does it mean to hallow something? Praise and worship. No, it's more narrow than that. It does include that. It's more narrow than that, though. Uh, I got you all in English here. I won't call on our English teacher. Because she teaches many things, and I've already called on her a couple of times. What does the word hallowed mean? I'll give you a hint. Oh, go ahead. Judy, you're going to take a shot at this? Judy Beresford. I think that's Judy Beresford in the square. No, your square, your square lit up. I thought you were going to say something. Hallowed. Oh, it means treat as holy. Yeah, so it's right on the, this, this topic of the book. So the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're praying that God's name would be treated as holy in the world. Here's a really helpful thing, by the way, when you're praying. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer as a guide for prayer. And there are two very practical ways we can pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, of course, we just read through it. We're going in church, right? You, you just pray the words. But in your own private devotions, I want to give you two ways to pray the Lord's Prayer. One is you pray the whole Lord's Prayer about one aspect of your life, right? So you're thinking about your job and you pray, you know, um, our Father who art in heaven. Would your name be hallowed in my workplace today, right? And would your kingdom come in terms of your will being done in, in, in through me in this job and so on? You could pray through aspects of your life that way. But another useful way to pray the Lord's Prayer is to take one petition of the Lord's Prayer, like hallowed be thy name, and pray that about all the aspects of your life, right? Lord, would your name be hallowed in my heart? right, that I am honoring you and I'm holding your name up, that your name would be honored on my lips, that it would be honored in my family as holy, that it would be set apart as holy in our church family, in our workplace, in our country, right, in our neighborhoods. That's actually a really useful way to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And what Jesus is giving us is the very first thing to pray for is not for our daily bread, and God knows we need our daily bread, right? He loves us. We're his children. He's going to provide for us. But the very first thing he says we ought to pray for is that God's name would be treated and revered as holy. And then you think, of course, how the Lord's name is dragged through the mud all the time and taken in vain. That's a real problem in our culture, but honestly, often in the church, right? People treat Jesus. They treat the Father. They treat the Holy Spirit lightly in the church. And we ought to pray that's not true of us. We ought to pray also that by God's grace, that it would not just be hallowed with us, but that God would cause it to be hallowed in all his churches and increasingly throughout our neighborhoods. Does that make sense to everybody? So think hallowed is not simply a praise word. It's saying, I'm praying that God's name would be revered as being holy. Um. Okay, here's the really trick question for someone who's much better educated than I am that really confused me with the chapter. 
The chapter begins with a quotation from a poem from Edgar Allan Poe. Gaily bedlight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shadow, riding along singing a song in search of El Dorado. Does anybody know how that relates to this chapter? I was, a, I was a poor engineer and not a poet in college. I am baffled. Jody's got an answer for me. Come on, Jody. How does this relate to the chapter? I don't, I'm not sure, but El Dorado, I think that's the, like the fountain of youth or, um, that they were searching for, I believe. And so it's, I think it's kind of like living forever. So I, I guess, I don't know, right? Yes. Search of the Holy. Yeah, well, yeah, God, we live forever because of God and His holiness, I guess. I don't know. Could be. Know. Or Judy, Judy said just the idea of searching, right? So here's someone searching for the fountain of youth, eternal life, or something like gold, whatever they happen to be searching for. And God, he's saying we ought to be searching for the holiness of God in that way. I think that's also possible. Yeah. I would also throw in that R.C. Sproul wasn't a poet either. So um, uh, maybe it's not a, yeah, Ray. Uh, in Puerto Rico, there's a Dorado beach and a golf course, Dorado golf course. I don't think that's it, but you could be right because I don't know the answer. <laughs> anyway, other, other thoughts on the chapter, other thoughts on the holiness of God, things you hope to learn in the coming weeks. Things you hope to teach me in the coming weeks? Sunshine. I just, one of the things that. Oh, wait a second. You gotta, no, you gotta mute, Judy. That doesn't help. You have to turn your volume down. Okay. Sorry, we have two. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm gonna mute everybody. Kristen, would you talk? You got to unmute yourself. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Wait a minute. What one of the things that I thought about as I was reading this chapter was how understanding the holiness, the majesty, the awesomeness of God affects our worship yeah. of Him and so, and deepens our deepens our worship. How so? Speak to that. What's that? Sp sp flesh that out a bit. How, how does thinking about the holiness of God deepen your worship and our worship? I think because I have a greater understanding of who God is, yeah. his awesomeness, his majesty. Um, I'm able to think more about his characteristics, those characteristics of God when I enter into worship. Yeah. Um, There's really a wonderfully virtuous circle here. Rightly worshiping God leads us to understanding him better and understanding him better leads to deeper um, worship of him, right? You can't worship a God you don't know. 
and, and I want to say that this also plays into our studying to the degree that we can. Now, not everybody's going to be, you know, um, an academic studier like Silas is, or, or like I have the privilege of being as a pastor, where we get to read a lot of theology all the time. But the reality is, is taking that time to study about God, studying his word deeply, is then when you enter into corporate worship, you're bringing more with you, right? Um, you can think of about learning how to sing, something I know nothing about. So my my uh, wonderful mother-in-law is going to cringe and then correct me on air here. That's fine. Uh, I love her. She's a wonderful person. Um, but, you know, when you first start learning to sing, you don't know anything about music. You don't sing very well. And if you study and you learn more and you learn some music theory and you practice and you work on doing scales and you and you start getting all that done right, your singing is going to get better. And in an analogous way, I think that's true of our theology and our worship, right? As we come to fill out those gaps and know God better and know what he's done and also experience him in our lives, then when we gather together to worship, when we come before the throne of grace, it is going to be richer and more meaningful for us. That is, right worship that honors God as holy is actually also good for us. Those things are not in tension with each other as though um, I either have to focus on me or focusing on God. Focusing on God is good for me. It's also good for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Other thoughts? We'll wrap this up for tonight. I think also as we're focusing on God, because we've, you know, um, seen his holy attributes and, you know, are looking at him more clearly, uh, it changes our behavior. And um, when we're tempted to disobey like Uzzah was, you know, with thoughts of good intention, we're more likely to look at our actions once again if they're in disobedience to God. Yeah, so I, I think you're totally right, Mona. But I, I would also add they aren't good intentions. We claim they're good intentions for ourselves. And when we look at other people, it's good for us to be charitable. We assume there's good intentions. We have to remember that behind those intentions is um, a, a self-centered view of ourselves. Uzzah was sinning when he did this. He wasn't doing something out of good heart that he happened to slip and make a mistake. It might have been an instinctual thing, right? But he was sinning when he did this. And uh, we, we do that too. We have an obligation to know God and to pursue him. Um, the Roman Catholics actually have a very helpful category for this. That's true in Protestantism too, but we don't talk about it as much. Uh, and that is, we do have an obligation to follow our consciences. But the obligation to follow our consciences entails an obligation to rightly form our consciences. And Uzzah had failed to rightly form his conscience. Now, I'm not picking on Uzi here. I'm picking on me. We all have to do this for ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why Luther's um, statement uh, at the Council of Worms is so important. Catholics and Protestants agreed you had to follow your conscience. Luther said, yes, but you have to form it according to the word of God. Right? And of course, as Protestants, we agree with that. So what we have to do is get God's word into our minds and hearts so we think about God the way he has revealed himself to us. And as we know him better, yes, that will change the way we live, it'll change the way we think. And it won't just be behavior modification. 
Um, you know, you think about this in relationships with friends and marriages, parents and children and stuff. Uh, behavior modification is sometimes good, right? You want people to act differently, act better. But behavior modification is no substitute for a changed heart that drives the new behavior because it's the relationship that matters. And that's what God is looking for with us. He wants us to have a right relationship with him. Therefore, he wants us to know him better. Part of knowing him better is knowing he's holy. I think the flip side of that is also true. The more we know God and see his holiness, the more we're weaned from the world and we see the wickedness oh, yeah. and the evil of the world. Yeah, Martha, that's so true. And I, I will say, though, that we should remember this is not like storing up knowledge for a test. We can lose things from the front of our thinking and the pulsating center of our lives, even with a lot of knowledge in our heads. This is why when people walk away or drift away from the church and they're not actively worshiping God with God's people for a period of time, it becomes easier and easier for them to live worldly lives, right? Whereas if you're actually encountering God's word and opening your heart to him in prayer and confessing your sins, um, that, that's, a, that's a very practical check on us in terms of um, our behavior and worldliness. And, and I think part of what you're saying that's so important is worldliness is not just bad behavior, right? It's, it's, it's not drawing near to God. If you know God is holy, you know his character, you want to please your father in heaven. So why don't we stop here? We have a lot to talk about in the coming three, four months, however long it takes us to go through the book. Um, and we'll move to prayer together. Let me get us off um, the recording here.